Uh, what a blessing. Um, I love this season. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to everyone. There is so much to be thankful for. Uh, as the Young Adults Pastor, I do have to add the two announcements that December 9th is a worship night uh, for everybody. The Young Adults will be leading worship. I encourage you guys to come and, and join that. And December 18th is a uh, Young Adults Dinner, formal dinner. Uh, pray that the Young Adults will sign up for that. If you're not part of the group me, join the group me so that we can get you that information. Um, but prayerfully, you had a chance to spend this weekend just thinking about what are you thankful for? Uh, because like I said, there's so much to be thankful for. I know for me, there's tons to be thankful for. Uh, as you guys know, uh, part of that is January 1st. I am getting married, uh, remarried, so looking forward to that. Uh, my fiance is sitting here. She's here with us. Um, and I do want to say, uh, I can't invite everybody to the reception, which is December 31st, but January 1st is an open forum. If you want to come and see us take our vows, please join us. You'd be welcome to come. Uh, it's going to be 2 o'clock on the 1st here at the church. Uh, Pastor Rob will be uh, officiating over that, and so really welcome you to, to come and join. Um, but I do have to say, I'm particularly thankful in this season that Christmas music begins. <laughs> and so I hope you all can join in and be thankful that, uh, I know the fish is now Christmas music all day long, uh, the blessing of this season seems to be endless, and so we, uh, we enjoy that. We're continuing this morning, uh, we're going to be finishing 1 John chapter 3, and um, you know, we are one week closer to Jesus coming, um, but the way we live in that expectation is here and now in the present. That is what God calls us to. And what we are going to be looking at this morning uh, in this section of Scripture, uh, which is really a beautiful section of Scripture, is what Paul summarizes in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 13 ends this way. He says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And John is going to be parroting this sentiment and he's going to be expounding on it in this section of Scripture. You know, it's amazing how repetitive the Bible is. Um, there are just a bunch of themes that show up time and time again throughout the Bible. The Bible doesn't really have a lot of concepts. There are very few, and they're actually very simple concepts, but they are full of depth, and they are full of meaning, and they can actually be a challenge to live. And that's the hard part. The encouragement is to come here week after week to be encouraged to live this life of God that he has called us to. And so God knows we need a lot of repetition for these key simple concepts. And so scripture after scripture reinforces them. And even though the concepts are few and even though they're simple, the depth of their understanding is infinite. And Paul in that scripture actually says that these three ideas, hope, faith, and love, will continue even into eternity. We will be exploring the depths of them forever. And so the meaning of it all and the implications, John's going to be attempting to show us this morning. And I want to contrast this with the wisdom of the world. Um, I love taking that opportunity because we are bombarded with the ideas of the world. You know, my daughter is home for Thanksgiving, one of the things I was very thankful for. And she's writing a paper for uh, her philosophy class. And she has chosen in this paper to take the perspective of the skeptics. And if you don't know the skeptics, um, the skeptics are those who are skeptical of everything. So the name kind of tells itself. But we're discussing some of the ideas, and it reminded me of my love and hate relationship with, with academics, right? I love to explore ideas. I am a man of contemplation. I enjoy it. I think it's wonderful. 
And she was discussing the ideas of the skeptics that we can never know reality. And it is seemingly such a profound thought. But it is so abstract and so worthless <laughs> for daily living <laughs> that at the end of it, it is totally meaningless. And it is so reflective of the world's wisdom. The world's wisdom is 10 miles wide and about a millimeter deep <laughs> because it has no substance to it. It offers all these grand ideas to contemplate and erudite and to have expositions over and all these fancy words that you can use to, to tell people that you're really smart. And yet, it has no depth. And it has zero application to our real lives. And as my daughter herself put it, she said, if I was studying this stuff without a foundation, life would be meaningless and empty to me. But that doesn't have to be us. Because we have a foundation. And that foundation is the Bible. Now, I have to apologize to my daughter. She's been here three days. She's already in my sermon. I'm sorry. <laughs> Guys don't know what it's like to be a preacher's kid. It's a constant display. Um, but I couldn't resist because it is such a great example of the distinction of the world and that of the Bible. Because our Bible is not that way. And our God is not that way. Our God tells us that he gives us everything we need for life, and for holiness, everything we need. And that's what God is all about. Our God is about what is real and meaningful. He understands our hungers and our desires and our needs. And he wants us to understand that ultimately he's the only one who can fill those things. And so Jesus warned us that the way of life is narrow. It's an inch wide, but it is infinitely deep. And that's what John is going to be sharing with us tomorrow. And the depths of the way of life are filled with faith, hope, and love. We never truly know faith, hope, and love unless we live it. You see, the Christian life is not meant to be contemplated. It's meant to be lived. It is in the active living of faith, hope, and love that we truly understand what God intends by these things. And we can't be filled with hope until we are exercising faith, and our faith comes from understanding the fullness of God's love for us. You know, last week Daniel presented the, the Bible's reality that you are either of God or you are of the devil. See, that is the emptiness of the world. All the ways of the world lead to death because Satan is a liar, and that's all he has to offer. A life without faith, without any hope, in fact, for the world, death is an escape, as too many people pursue. Because when you sit around and just contemplate a life without God, it is truly meaningless. But when we understand God's love, it fulfills the hunger that is inside of us. When we make Jesus Lord, God gives us his life. And that's how verses 14 and 15 ended last time with Daniel. These were the words that Daniel ended with. We know that we have passed out of death into life. And how do we know this? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. But everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so the mark of a Christian is this life of faith, hope, and particularly love. Love is meant to be the characteristic that defines us. 
It's how the Bible tells us we know that we've been given new life because we are able to love, not just any love, but the love that God loves. Love is how we recognize the new life in us, and it's how we live it, um, giving it to others. And this is the same way we might look at someone's face, uh, we might look at the way they dress, we might, you know, look at uh, their accent, and it tells you something about them. It tells you where they're from. It lets you know who they are. And the Bible says that is what love does. It lets people know that we are sons of God. You know, Jesus said the fruit of a Christian, our markings would be that we have love for one another. He said that's how the world would recognize us. I have this odd desire to pause because it was uh, Nick that mentioned maybe you were at a Thanksgiving dinner with some family tensions. How was your Thanksgiving conversation? Was it marked with love? Would people have walked away from the Thanksgiving table and said, no, 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 this guy is a Christian. How do I know? Because his words were filled with love. Was that this Thanksgiving? Or were some of our words filled with bitterness or anger or some of the other things that come out when we get into some of the discussions that can happen around the Thanksgiving table? And so John is going to be digging into this concept about why love is so important. And the Bible is going to contrast the life of death that comes from following the devil with the life of love that comes from God. And, of course, the irony, you know, I, uh, for those who've ever heard my testimony, one of the things that I like to share with people is I became a Christian because the Bible made no sense. <laughs> it's, like, completely upside down. And in reading it, I came to the conclusion that nobody would make this stuff up. Like, it is so out there. <laughs> and here we're going to be talking about life and the life of love, how do we attain life by death? That just makes no sense. But that's what the Bible is going to teach us. So let's read John 3.16, and then we'll pray and we'll dig into his word. Uh, beginning uh, 1 John 3.16 to 24. It says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, the word of God is meant to be lived. By this we know that we are of the truth, and we reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in us, in, in God, and God is in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that are found in it. We thank you for the love, Lord God, that you have showered upon us. Father, may we learn to live in that love and in, to share that love with all those we come into contact with. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So having told us that we must be marked by love, John now shows us what this love looks like. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. There's so many ways that the Bible tries to help us understand God's love. Again, like I said, repetitive, these concepts. 
that the Bible has. But both God's love for us and then the love that we are supposed to live for others. But few places in the Bible are as simple and as direct as John lays it out here. There are some places that are more poetic, right? 1 Corinthians 13, people love to read that. Love is patient, love is kind, and so on and so on. Uh, you know, probably the most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But here, John is just going to lay it on the line and be absolutely pointed. And the simplicity of his appeal is what gives it such punch. He says, do you want to understand love? Do you really want to know what love looks like? Look at the cross. You want to understand God's love for you? Then see Jesus on the cross. That's all. That's the final statement of God's love. But then he goes further, and he wants, says, do you want to know what your love is supposed to look like? See yourself on the cross, because that's your display of love. He says you don't have to remember or think about anything else. You simply need to look at the cross. And if you can picture that, then you can understand love. And once you understand love, then Jesus invites you to crawl on the cross with him and pick up your cross daily and to follow him. And you say to yourself, to death, Lord? And Jesus says, yes, to death, because that is the only way you will ever truly live. See, we can't live the life of love in our flesh. Our flesh fights against it. Our self is selfish. Its desire is for what it wants. And the life of love is always sacrificial. And that's why the order is so important. And that's why John lays it out this way. Because he says, if you don't fully grasp God's love, you'll never live love as it was intended to be lived. It's why John actually doesn't even use my shortcut, right? I use these words just now. I said, if you want to know love, look at the cross. John didn't say that, did he? He actually said... Don't just look at the cross. He said, focus on the one who is on the cross. You see, the, the focus should always be not on the wooden beam, but on the reality of Jesus on that cross. And it's not the gore, and it's not the pain that he suffered. Those are reflections of our wickedness and the sin that he was freeing us from. But what actually matters is his heart on the cross. The fact that Jesus willingly laid down his life, that's what makes the cross the display of God's love, not the cruelty that was heaped upon Jesus. But Jesus, on the cross, willingly laying down his life. In John 10, 18, Jesus says it this way. He says, no one takes it from me, it being his life. He says, I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This I have received from my Father. You see, Jesus didn't just have the power, but he had the authority to not die had he chosen to. He said, I could call 10,000 angels, and they'd come and take me off of this cross. But it was his choice to die. It was his heart of sacrifice to give himself for us. It was his heart to suffer death one time so that we would not have to suffer death for all eternity meaning being separated from God the Trinity, both Father, all Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. See, that is love, is putting the needs of others above our own needs at all costs. That is the high calling 
and the, the hard charge that Jesus lays in our lap. That is what John is going to be calling us to because he says Jesus was the example. And what does he go on to say in verse 16? And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then he tells us what that explicitly looks like. Because he says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so the charge that is given to us is to put this love into action, but not just to action. It is to put this love into action in our every day. You know, John uses an everyday example. And so I hope that we understand that the context here is not just about giving people stuff, right? That's not really what, what John is all about. Because our example is Jesus. He looked down from eternity and he saw our need, and without asking, he simply gave. That's the example. And John says we need to go and live this way. John says this living is in the everyday mundane things of life. You see, for many of us, we would love the charge to go do something brave and big and heroic. You know, it's like, I, I'll jump in front of the train. I'll, I'll push you out of the way. I'll sacrifice my life. I'll take that bullet for you, you know, is what we want to say. But John says, no, true love is lived in the everyday. You know, and uh, the example so often is our spouses. We'll take our bullet for our spouses. And then we're driving home and our spouse says, hey, honey, can you pick up some milk on the way? Ah, oh, geez, honey, really? I'm tired. I got to stop now. It's in the mundane <laughs> that we show the love of God. The big courageous stuff has been done by Christ. He gets all the glory. What we need is to live it day by day in the little things. And it's not just about giving stuff, right? Someone may simply need you to sit down with them and grieve with them, which takes time out of your day. Someone may need you to visit them in the hospital, which causes you to go out of your way. Maybe a brother or a sister needs some tutoring in a subject. And you just give your time, right? Acceptance and welcoming is a daily need. You know, you won't believe the praise we get because of our welcome team. How many people have said, I, I came back Another Sunday, because you guys were just so welcoming. You guys don't understand how, how much that is an act of love being displayed every Sunday as people walk through the doors, and they just feel welcomed and encouraged, right? At sacrifice to yourself, maybe you're having a lousy day. Maybe you woke up on the wrong side of the bed, and yet you greet someone with a smile. You put yourself aside to share the love of Christ. That's the mundane, everyday stuff that God cares about. And we are able to do that when we recognize the blessings that God has poured out into our life. The first of which is, of course, eternal life, as we look to the cross. Jesus stripped himself of, of his distaste for our sins and chose to show us love. And he says, you must do the same. Even to those that you may not particularly like, right? Our calling is to love our enemies. Now, I do want to point out here, though, that John is primarily talking about brothers and sisters. And I, I always like to throw this in. I don't want to diminish charity to outsiders, just giving of things. But I do think it's always important to note that most of the giving in the Bible is actually talking about giving here in the church. There should be no needs in the body. 
See, and as the world sees a family that is just so generous with one another, they're going to want to be part of that family. That's actually where charity is to be done. It's not to take away from the need to give to those on the outside, but there really should be no needs in the body of Christ. And more importantly than that, we need to be careful because so much of charity from the church to the outside world becomes the priority. We want to feed the hungry wherever they may be, you know, Asia, Africa, South America, whatever it may be, those impoverished. And we get so busy doing that, we forget their spiritual hunger and the greater need of giving them the gospel. It's great to go and, 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 and feed the, uh, the hungry down here, you know, whether it's Harbor City or any of these places, there's some homeless encampments. and a lot of, It's great. You go down there, you take sandwiches, but that's an introduction to bringing the gospel to them. It's an opportunity to quench that greater thirst that comes from not knowing Jesus. And so we just need to be wise to keep that um, in order. But most of the giving is giving within the church. And notice what John does here, right? John doesn't say give to the church to give to your brother. He says give to your brother, <laughs> right? The giving to the church is for the running of the church. And yes, we give and we help others. But you should be so actively engaged in one another's lives that you know each other's needs. See, that is God's love. It requires fellowship. It requires knowing and being known. <laughs> That's why it's one of the primary uh, core values here at Calvary Chapel. Because we need to know and be known. Be such a part of each other's lives that we can share and give to those daily needs. Now, love is the most important part of the tripartite life of Christ, but it is not alone. Our life is one of faith, hope, and love. And John, again, is going to practically show us what faith and hope should look like in our life. He begins in verse 19. He says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Faith and hope, basically, they're hard to separate. You see, our faith is what gives us hope. Or as the writer in Hebrews puts it, he says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things not seen. You know, in the world, hope has become synonymous with wish. Well, I hope this would happen. I hope that would happen. But that is not Christian hope. Hope in the world is an empty desire with no expectation of fulfillment. Biblical hope is the exact opposite. Biblical hope is undergirded by our faith, by our understanding that our God and our Father is sovereign, and he has given us this promise that he's going to take everything in this life and work it to our good. And we can take that to the bank. John says, take comfort, because the thing that we all hope for most the thing that we crave, God freely gives us. And what is that thing that mankind so deeply craves? Acceptance. You see, we're not only loved by God, but we are accepted by God. And we all crave to be accepted. We all know the feeling of constantly being judged as the world does. We're all attuned to every slight and, and every rejection that might come our way. And we're constantly trying to tune our antennas to the whims of the world around us that we might be accepted by those 
that we find ourselves with. And John says to all of us, God accepts you. And more importantly than that, he accepts you as you are. Whew. We can all take off the mask <laughs> and be accepted by God. He says, by this we know that we are of the truth and we reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, see, that's what the world does when it rejects us. God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. God, being fully aware of all your flaws, fully aware of the guilt you feel in his presence, fully aware of how judged you feel, accepts you. And more importantly, he promises that he can overcome those feelings, those doubts, and those fears, and that sense of rejection that's in our heart. He says he's greater than our heart. And John tells us that he overcomes those fears that are in our heart. He's going to expound on this in chapter 4, and I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but in chapter 4, he puts it so succinctly that it's worth repeating. He says simply this, perfect love is cast out in fear. That's it. And all those fears we have fall away in God's perfect love. But first, he gives us the assurance that God is on our side, working with us to overcome those fears. He says God is greater than our heart. And this is one of the greatest things that distinguish the life of a Christian from the life of the world. It is the confidence and assurance that comes from being loved and accepted by God. In Christ, we should become so fearless that we can live the fullness and the boldness that is the gospel as God intended. You know, the funny thing is this isn't just something the Bible knows. Um, this is something the world knows. Is, you know, God's timing is always perfect and Rob's always sending little articles and little reminders, and sure enough, yesterday, he says, hey, Ben, you got to read this article, <laughs> and so I read this article, and it's all about this generation and the fears that they are facing, and those fears have practically forced them to be frozen in their boots, and I, I just wanted to read this paragraph from this article. It says, we are seeing a rising generation acutely averse to risk. And so to every form of dynamism, and this trend is not confined to the young, excessive risk aversion is deforming other areas of American life, from child-rearing to work to public leadership. And it seems intertwined with a more general tendency toward inhibition and constriction. We see this in speech, code conducts, which leave Americans walking on eggshells around them each other in many of our major institutions. This new ethos stifles the public arena while denying us recourse to private arenas and tells us how not to behave without showing us how to thrive. Basically, people are afraid to live. They are so fearful of what others are going to think or being canceled or whatever the topic is these days that they are afraid to live. And that is not the Christian life. I had to look it up quickly as we were singing it this morning. But, you know, that last song uh, that we sung, King of Kings, it tells us this. It says, the morning that you rose, all of heaven held its breath till that stone was moved for good, for the Lamb had conquered death. And the dead rose from their tombs, the spiritually dead too. And the angels stood in awe, for the souls of all who'd come to the Father are restored. And the church of Christ was born, and the Spirit lit the flame. Now this gospel truth of old shall not kneel and shall not faint. See, that is living. By his blood and in his name, 
In his freedom, I am free. For the love of Jesus Christ has resurrected me. That's the life of Christ. That is what we are called to. We don't have to live in the emptiness that the world has. The world does not know how to live. And they certainly don't have the confidence to do so even if they knew how. <laughs> they recoil in fear. We are not to be that. And John goes on to say, here is the promise. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, that is how we have confidence before God. That whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. John has, says here that, that all of this works together this way by resting in his love, or as Rob taught a couple of weeks ago, by abiding in Christ, and Rob told us what that meant, then our hearts don't condemn us. That's where the freedom comes from, is when we are living in obedience. We have confidence before God. And he says this confidence is going to build up our faith, and the promise of Christ will become a reality. The same promise that, that Jesus gave in John 15, 7, when he said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, whatever you wish, it will be done for you. That's what John is repeating here. He says you will receive whatever you wish when we are living in his commandments. And some will argue, well, that sounds like works, that I have to, I have to do what I, this stuff in order to get God to bless me. No. That is called faith. One, because we know faith without works is dead, and obedience is our faith in action. But secondly, because he tells us what the commandment is. In verse 23, he says this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you've done that. <laughs> That's the works of God. And then he goes on, and love one another. Because Jesus told us that all the commandments are summed up, that we love God and love others as he has commanded us. That is the promise. And whoever keeps his commandments, that's how you abide in God and God in him. God's commandments is not a list of things to do. It begins with faith in Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, and it ends in love, as we've been discussing today. That's it. And where our love is perfected, Christ will abound. And he promises us when we are living in his perfect will, ask anything of him, and he will give it to you. So I'm going to excite you and disappoint you all in one statement. <laughs> because here we go. You're going to ask me, Ben, does this mean that if I ask God for a Lamborghini, he's going to give it to me? No, I'm a, I'm a car enthusiast. Okay, so replace Lamborghini with whatever gets your heart pounding. I got no idea. Okay, but the answer is Yes. If you ask God for a Lamborghini, he will definitively give it to you. But if you're abiding in Christ, you'll never ask for the Lamborghini. <laughs> that's the reality. <laughs> because that's not what's going to be consuming you. When you're abiding in the richness of Christ, you have things so much better than that Lamborghini. It won't be a thought in your mind. You won't care. You see, that's what James tells us in 4.2.3. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. And he says, when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask wrongly. You ask to spend it on your passions. Those are your passions apart from God. Those aren't your passions when you're abiding in God. When you're abiding in God, what are our passions going to be? Our passions are going to be for the lost. You see, when we crawl up on that cross next to Jesus and we have his vantage point... 
What was Jesus' view as he looked down from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's his passion. That's his heart. And when we nestle up next to Jesus on that cross and put our flesh to death, our passion is going to be for the lost, their need for forgiveness, because they know not what they do, as the Wall Street Journal article tells us. And they desperately need to know life that comes through Christ alone. You know, Chuck Smith, who established the Calvary chapels, were part of, um, he used to say this way. He says, prayer is not intended to align God's will with ours. It is intended to align our will with God's. That is what prayer does. And when we're abiding in Christ, those are the types of prayers we will pray. And when we pray those prayers, you are guaranteed they will be answered every single time. That is the promise. How do we know that we're praying God's will? How can we know that? I'm glad you asked, because <laughs> John's going to answer us in verse 24. It says, whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him. By this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. You know, Daniel stood up here and said, you have the mind of Christ because you have the mind of Christ. <laughs> we don't have to guess whether or not we're praying God's will. God says he has given us his spirit. Now, we have to learn to live in the discipline of following the spirit. And in the next several verses, once again, I'm, I don't want to get ahead of where we're going to go, but in the next several verses, John's going to tell us that we also, in hearing the Spirit, need to learn to test every spirit, right? Because we do want to make sure that we're hearing the right spirit. But it is enough that we have the Spirit. We must simply learn to walk in it. Listening to the Spirit is a discipline. And the reality is this, is that on this earth it may not be perfected. Right? 1 Corinthians 12 tells us, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now we know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Our flesh is going to interfere from time to time when we are communing with God. But that doesn't mean we live in fear. We can still live fearlessly because God has given us his spirit. And it begins with abiding in him by waiting on the Lord. It continues with obedience, and it manifests itself in this life of, of faith and hope. It manifests itself in this life of the enduring love of God in our lives. And as we do those things, John says, trust the Spirit. Trust that your spirit is aligned with his. We can trust that our, our thoughts are aligned with his, and that our desires are going to be his desires, and that our prayers are going to be in accord with him. And next week, he's going to tell us Test those spirits, right? And so it's, it's not carte blanche that every thought that pops into your head is from the Spirit. The Bible tells us to test those things against the Word of God. And God is never going to tell your spirit to do anything that is outside of His Word or His will. That's easy. That's simple. But the rest, we can go and live boldly. And John tells us that our conscience is not bothering us. If, if, we, if, if we know that we are at peace. Now, if our conscience is bothering us, if we're not at peace, maybe you've been in sin. What's the answer? Repent. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> That's all it takes. 
Because Jesus has died once and for all for every sin. And we repent. And that brings us back into alignment with God. And we carry forward in hope and faith and in love. And that's it. This is the life of God. It is a life that is bathed in God's love, that radiates that love to others. It's a life full of confidence that comes from being a child of God. It rests in the assurance and the hope that the world can never know because our ultimate hope is the eternity that is promised to us. It is a hope that knows that our better days are ahead of us because even our best days on this earth are a shadow of what is to come. And this sort of life becomes a testimony to the world because they see it, they cannot live it, and they hunger for it. And here is the good news. This is the life that awaits anyone who chooses to surrender their life to Christ. And so if you're here today and this is not your life, if you don't have that kind of confidence, if you don't know the love and peace that comes from Christ alone, God wants to give you an offer today. God wants you to do where we began. Look at the man upon the cross. Understand why he is there. He is there because our sins have separated us from, from God. You see, life is not free. Life costs something. And Jesus paid that by his love. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And in laying down his life, he paid the price for all of our sins. The one who was sinless became sin to wipe away our sins. And so Jesus has removed that stain. You know, what it means to become a Christian is simply this. Jesus says, if you confess me as Lord, you will be saved. If you believe that God raised him from the dead. That's what Romans tells us. And Christianity is simply this. It's recognizing that we were lords of our own life. And we were doing a pretty lousy job at it. <laughs> and we need a new Lord who can lead us out of the path of death into the path of life. That's it. And so if you are here today and you have never made Jesus Lord, if you want to understand this, this life, true life that I've been talking about, we want to give you that opportunity as we close. We're going to pray. We're going to bring the worship team up here. There's going to be folks up here that will pray with you. But know that there is no life apart from Christ. There is no life apart from the hope and the faith and the love that is found in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to thank you, Father. We thank you for your word, Father. But more importantly, we thank you for the promises that, that leap out from these pages to us. The, the promise of, of hope that comes from knowing you. The promise of faith that we can have. The faith that you have wiped away our sins. The faith that you walk with us through all circumstances. And the faith, Father, that you are sovereign over all things. And you are working all things for our good. Father, we pray this morning that what we would know most of all is the love that you showered upon us. That we see as we look at Jesus upon the cross. May we know his love and then may we, as we abound in that love, may it flow out from us to all those that we come into contact with. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.